Jeff. What's up, Lauda? How are you doing today? I see you over there bobbing your head I when was, the music is, I was. is on and popping. I, I really like it. You know, it doesn't get old. It you doesn't. You get used to it. It's wonderful. It's a vibe. <laughs> it is a vibe. It's a vibe. This whole thing is a vibe. It <laughs> and it's a vibe with food, so I don't know what's better than that. Food vibes are always good vibes. <laughs> Feeling good vibes, sunshine, and good vibes. It is nice out. It really is. Hello, 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 everyone who's listening. Thank you for listening to Queen's Best, the podcast. This is a wonderful space where we at the Queen's Chamber provide a platform for our local restaurants and food and beverage businesses to be able to really dive in and tell their stories and tell us why they're so unique and great and everyone's been wonderful so far and there are amazing queens restaurants so diverse yeah you can't even hit them all i don't think we'll try you can eat your way through the borough (laughs) that's right that's a whole nother podcast and (laughs) (laughs) and you can find us on instagram and everywhere you get your podcast and the chamber's website www queenschamber.org we have another amazing exciting wonderful episode for our listeners we're excited to welcome Bikash Carvel right. of Wild in Kathmandu that's right and what an amazing location and an incredible even exterior before you even get inside. I was really struck by the front door and everything. It's really beautiful. It takes you like to Napoleon. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's kind of cool. I can't wait. Last episode, who did we hang out with? Oh, we've been hanging out in Ridgewood, right? So yeah. we got to hang out at Rolo's. That was um, Howard Kalachnikov, one of the chef owners. Um, and we had a really great time over there. We did. Yeah. Had some focaccia bread. We did. That because he swears is the best in the land. That's right, because they have that uh, wood-fired oven. They're cooking on cooking on flames. Flaming hot. <laughs> it was good. It was really, really tasty. So tune in and listen to that episode, because it is available now for your listening pleasure. And slide into our DMs. Message us on Instagram. We want to hear from you. We want to know what's trending in your food world. That's right. What have you been eating and what would you like us to go and visit and eat and talk about? In the Queensboro area. That's right. All throughout Queens. Until we get airline tickets to go overseas. (laughs) Can't wait for that. All right. I'm going to I'm going to pray for that, too. Exactly. What's (laughs) what's trending in uh, your your food space? That's a really, really great question. Um, it's such a it's such a tough job being a chef working with in this kind of an organization out in the world when you're trying to eat healthy at home. So mm-hmm. it doesn't happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we eat out a ton. It was just uh, Queens Restaurant Month, so there were so many incredible places to eat in Queens that were offering discounts. Um, we've hit a whole bunch of them. Let's see, where did I, I went to a few places in Sunnyside, we went to, um, we had Turkish food, mm. there's just, I can't even think of all of the great places that... Your palate has just run rampant. It's probably more than I should be doing right now, but uh, hey, you know. it tastes it all. You only live once. And then, like this place that we're at today, really branching out in Nepali cuisine, 
Um, there's an area in Jackson Heights where everyone goes and, and you kind of get stuck in the groove where you go to the same places. Mm-hmm. So we'll go to Nepali Banchagar to get momos. So I'm super excited to be out of that area and in some place else where we're at a Nepali spot. Can't wait. Yeah, what about you? What's trending in your food world? Trending in my food world. I am always eating. I wake up in the morning thinking about food. And it's like, it's a, what's <laughs> I know you have rice what's in your lunch? bag right now. Rice in my bag now. <laughs> <laughs> for lunch, I had... What did I have for lunch? For lunch, I had... Hello. Thank you. That's I'm right. I'm drawing a big blank. It was... Delicious homemade palau. When you say palau, I don't think of the food. I think of the island and scuba diving. So okay. that's also a different podcast. <laughs> tell, tell me about is. your palau. It certainly is. The palau is really flavorful. It had like big pieces of chicken and the rice mm. and the corn. And it's just it, it all like marries together. And it's so good. Yeah. It really is good. I haven't yeah. had it in a while. So I was thrilled to have it for lunch today so you know we got to eat that's what we do that's right and we eat and we eat and coming up (laughs) after this short little break we are going to be joined by Bikash Carvel who's going to talk to us about the journey that this restaurant has been under I'm really looking forward to this story it's going to be great all right Uh, we're going to do it coming up special guest, Bikash Carvel, while in Kathmandu. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, namaste. Namaste to everyone listening to the podcast today. I'm blessed to have Jeff and Lada uh, in this space um, and looking forward to having a conversation about food, life, and things in general. Yeah, Excellent. we're excited. Yes. Jump in. Very. So I'm going to jump right in there and ask, where did your passion from food? cooking come from um this is a, a very um I, i'm still not able to process that where the passion is really from but uh, i can give you indicative where i have learned things from because i'm not able to pinpoint when this came about because you know i'm not able to exactly pinpoint this is where you know i started becoming passionate about food for but it's really my mom that kind of gave me a lot of ethics about food um and that that's the foremost coming from home uh, my parents, both of them working about 12 hours every day when I was a child in middle school to high school. And it was me, my brother, my sister taking turns to make food at home. And I think that's where a lot of my learning of basics of Nepali food really came from, or food in general. It's making food for my family, taking turns. And my sister was also a big part of that because um, she taught me a lot of ideas of, of food, how she does things and how my mom does things. 
and, and it's, it's the conclusion of those ideas. But it's really later on that I joined my father in his restaurant business. That's where I got more skill sets in terms of the rudimentary uh, ideas about food industry, food prepping, cooking, and all those ideas. So um, I, I would give an equal amount of 50 50 to my pops and my moms for, uh, for, the, for the industry that I'm in. How did the restaurant come about initially? Um, so initially, my father had a restaurant back in 2005 in Maspeth. Uh, he was a cook. Once he moved from Nepal, um, he became a cook uh, into a new journey of life, a new profession and everything. And he opened the restaurant back in 2005 in, in Maspeth. I forgot the name of it. Um, and it kind of closed down, actually. Uh, it was a very bad process for him. Um, he was working with partners that kind of backstabbed him. And the same day, the next day of, of all of this happening, the apartment caught on fire. Uh, and so they were going through a lot of shit. Um, and he kind of kind of quit on the food industry at that point. It was later on, around 2012, when he partnered up with a few other local neighborhood community members in Ridgewood itself. And they decided to open a restaurant over here. And he was still undecisive if he should go into it or not because it was not a good thing for him in the past. And that time, I kind of recommended him that he should definitely go into food business. Uh, if anything, it's not going to be the same. Uh, we are here now for you. So we can help you run things and operate and get things better. So it was a community effort that motivated him? Um, I would say that it was 2012. In Ridgewood, there was no option for Nepali food. Uh, and uh, this, is not, this is not this restaurant we're talking about. We're talking about the Nepalese Indian restaurant on Seneca Avenue 907. That's the original restaurant that I, I kind of learned a lot of things from. That was the family background. Uh, but uh, we had about, in 2012, maybe roughly 4,000 Nepali people in the neighborhood, almost 5,000 by 2013-14. Okay. Uh, and in that period of time, there were no Nepali food locations in Ridgewood itself. And so most of the people in Ridgewood, we were traveling to Jackson Heights for... That's what I was going to offer. Mm. That's really yeah. where you hear that the Nepali community is, yes. but it isn't true. It's all across Queens. So I think, you know, the way Queens is, it can it's, it's really a beautiful place. Anywhere in Queens, uh, people are accepted for the way they are, and, and we have communities spread out. And one thing I'll tell you about Nepali people is that... Um, they don't stand out. And when I don't say that in a bad way. I think Nepali people are very easily, quickly assimilating into whatever community that they belong to. That is, it really becomes hard for you to kind of, you know, pick them out and call them they are Nepali. Because, we, you know, we don't go around, like, you know, making all this noise or creates, you know. We're there, we have a community, but, you know, it's, we also assimilate it so very well. And I think that really comes from the younger generation because we kind of assimilate really quickly into the population uh, so well. That, you know, it's, it's not easy to pick apart. And also, I think the other thing about Nepali people is, is how we look is also makes a big difference. If you look at the, the Nepalese context of people that we have in Nepal back home, we have the, the Himalayan regions that you have your Mongolian-featured uh, race of people. We have a midland that have more on the Indian side, subcontinent race of people. Then we have your um, hillside where you have more ethnic groups of Nepal itself. So in that, you'll find people that look like Asian, you know, in American context, Asian, or you'll find people that look like Latin American, uh, they're short, short, they're big, sturdy bodies, or you'll find people that look like Indian people. So it's really hard for us to categorize and be like, oh, these are Nepali people. Mm. Like, I know it when I say I'm a Nepali person, no matter where I am. Mm. Like, I'll, I'll sense it, like, this person is Nepali. But, you know, it's, 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 I think it's hard for the rest of the world to kind of see and pinpoint these are Nepali people. Well, you're going to show it through the food because the food is incredibly unique, incredibly rich, draws on all kinds of traditions and is communal as well in some it is, ways. It is, it is. I think um, the food culture in Nepal is very uh, unventured, uh, even quote unquote for even for the Nepali food industry itself. 
I think from where we come about, even when we did the Nepali restaurant over there, it was not a Nepali restaurant, quote unquote. It was more of an Indian Nepali restaurant. And that came from the understanding that my father or people of my father's generation, when they first came to the country, the first rudimentary place that they can get into was Indian cuisine. There were no established Nepalese restaurants. So when they started doing this Indian cuisine as cooks and chefs, and they eventually started becoming their own owners, for them it's so much easier to go into Indian food business than take a risk of introducing a whole new menu. Because that's a big risk. And it, talking about, you know, I grew up in New York, so the risk factor for me was more acceptable. You know, it's the hustle that of New York that kind of teaches you to break boundaries and kind of explore new ideas. And I had that depth, I had that courage, and also because of the background of family and understanding that I came from, I had that courage. But, you know, predominantly, I think a lot of Nepali restaurants that you see in the market, they are typically Nepali Indian restaurant. And 80% to 70% of their menus are more featuring of the Indian curries, South Indian curries, North Indian curries than it is of South Indian curries. And that's, that's more feature of the menu if you have ever noticed it. And so that was also one of my biggest thing when I transitioned from that restaurant to this one. That was one of my, one of my biggest goals that I want to change, that I want to I wanna be more dependent on Nepali food. I want to bring in the culture of different parts, ethnic groups and ideas that we have in our country. That's why we don't sell rice over here. Uh, you know, I, om I omitted from selling rice because rice means curries. They're not allowed to fall in the same trap. So I avoided the whole thing by just skipping the rice part. That skipped the whole curries part. And now I'm stuck with like finger food, <laughs> plates of different things from different <laughs> regions of the country. And it's beautiful. Wow, that's really incredible. And that's a really important point because Americans and not in Queens, Queens were super lucky, but in the country aren't exactly adventuresome eaters. They do the same routines over and over again. So I can see the fear of, right, of trying to, <laughs> to bring something. In. So I think we're very lucky that you branched out and that you're bringing more to the table. I want to add a little bit to what you said earlier. I think that was one of the biggest things that I saw in the restaurant over there in 907 Seneca, 907 Seneca restaurant. What I saw was we did have a good amount of Nepalese items in the menu in the very beginning. We had the choilas, the, you know, the, the sekuas and whatnot, the other nine yards. But uh, eventually over one year, two year, we had to skip out on those menus because we were prepping them, we were not selling them as much. So we had to skip on them. We had to kind of slowly take them away from the menu altogether. And that was the demographics of the market over there. And we noticed that very well. We, we noticed that people are not adventurous. We, you know, uh, when I was working for myself over there, when I was working with my father, it's generally this, this talk of, oh, um, you know, Americans don't eat goat, you know. Uh, it's, there's a, it's a very big thing in Indian restaurants. They don't push on goat as much because people don't think it's, a, it's fit for the palate over here. People mm -hmm. like it. Uh, I changed that. I, you know, I, one of my biggest dish over here is called Chitun Kotas. It's a goat meat platter. Um, and it comes from my hometown in Nepal, uh, where I'm from, Chitun. And it's like deep fried goat meat with like puff rice, some kind of pickles. It's like a nice little snack plate. Uh, it's not really a dinner food. It's not really a dinner food, but it's like a nice little snack plate. And we have done a lot of work that now I have noticed that even all the generation of people are trying those plates because we have made the effort to make it known and we're trying to educate the consumer at the same time. Thank goodness for goat because it's one of my favorites. So I'm very, I'm very glad. Is there a favorite menu item that you have? On the menu, uh, I think Chitunko Tas is my favorite. But beyond that, if you ask me um, what's one thing that is going to make you the most happy, I'll say not a taco, chola roti. Um, uh, that menu came about, uh, you know, we we're constructing this restaurant uh, and we already had two other restaurants in the time I was managing it. So typically my days ends around 11, 30, 12 every day. Mm. And so any time that I get in my friends or people that I hang out with is typically going to be after 11, 30, 12 o'clock. So, you know, 
my meals are usually th- at that time in life was like two or three o'clock in the morning. After drinking, we get something, and every day in the morning, the only thing you can get in New York is tacos. <laughs> two in the morning, you know. You can always get a taco. Uh, you can always get a taco, no That's matter right. what fells. Taco is always there. There is a taco truck somewhere out there. Somebody's making tacos. So, so I think that dish inspired me a lot. And one day, we were building this restaurant. I was coming back from Brooklyn, and uh, I was hanging out with a couple of my friends, and um, you know they were like, oh building a whole restaurant why not go to there and make something happen right now it's like two in the morning we drunk a little bit as well but in a sense adventurous so we came i had very few little things in the in the in the pantry but whatever i had kind of cooked it up almost played it the same way as a taco but with the ingredients that i had available in my kitchen and that's when that dish came about and i named it choila roti because it was two ingredients it was roti and choila both things combined with a little salsa a little bit of uh, you know uh, aioli in the top True late night fusion, right? So that <laughs> inspiration. <happened>. And uh, <laughs> the name is Chola Roti, but uh, one year into the, the menu, um, people kept on calling taco. You know, people are like, let me order the taco there. You know, I'm like, I'm just so pissed off because that's not the name of it. So I'm, I changed the name to Not a Taco. Not a Taco. Not a Taco. Not a taco. So <laughs> now the menu says Chola Roti, bracket, Not a Taco. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. So, Bikash, are you the head chef? So I am that. At the very moment, I am that chef. Um, it's, it's very. Um, it's very rigorous. I think in the food business, it's it's very uh, tough to do what we do. And when I say that, I, I say we because it's not only me. It's it's a hundred thousand amount of people in New York City that are in the industry every single day doing the same thing that I do. And every single of those have to go through the same struggle that I go through. So you know, I look at it from a very collective point of view. And this collective point of view kind of came about in, in, in pandemic when I realized that we had to lose the other restaurant. Um, we were short staff. We didn't have cooks. We didn't have uh, chefs. A lot of people were leaving the job. They were either you know, more happy on the unemployment or they were happy more towards seeking a different sector of work like Uber or they were moving out of New York. And it, some people even moved out of New York to you know, New Hampshire, Connecticut, whatnot, and which is okay. Everybody has to go in their own ways. So in that time, we had to decide, do you want to keep the Indian restaurant or the Nepali restaurant? And I decided at that time that I would keep the Nepali restaurant uh, with the idea that I don't want my father back in the workforce. Mm. It's time for him to retire. So mm. we kind of let go of that restaurant, and I stepped in over here as a head chef. And I managed the place as a head chef for the past two years. It's been about four months that I had a new team formed. Uh, I had a sous chef. I had two other cooks. Uh, but again, a uh, new update, I lost my sous chef. But mm. last I spoke with you about three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Today is supposed to be my day off. So officially today is my day off where I'm still working. Uh, Gosh, and how are you dealing with the quote-unquote labor shortage right now? It's really tough for everyone. I think the labor shortage is is, is um, something that we restaurant owners or management, it's not only the owners, also the management, because sometimes there is manager, there is supervisor, manager. There are key people involved in the restaurant that has to really take on double people work in these times and right. kind of sustain with the idea that there is a bigger goal in picture and we are sustaining for this. Uh, one of the things that I look at is that, you know, it's not only a restaurant, it's an establishment that supports four to five families. And that gives me a little float. Like, you know, even though there might be times that I'm tired as hell, you know, kind of the, the waking up point in the morning makes me realize that, hey, at the end of the day, this is supporting my family, it's supporting five other families, and that's what the most important part is. And that gives me more motivation. But, you know, labor shortage is real. It's really tough. It's, it's very rigorous. And also what's really happened is, you know, the changes of, uh, pricing in the market and the payment has gone up so much, so the expectation for the new workers are so high, but their their skill sets is so low, you know, and, yeah. and that kind of hampers the market as a whole. So, for example, um, 
in the Nepali food industry, I see a lot of people getting in the industry because they don't want to be good chefs, but they see a job industry available. And I don't blame them either. Uh, newcoming immigrants, they are trying to find their uh, job, they're trying to sustain a life. I support on that, but what really it does to the industry is that it does not allow for us to develop new menus or recipes because at this time they're only line cooks or workers that are only there for the job. They're not passionate about food to create new ideas or you know develop further into the situation. So I think that lacks that lack itself. I think uh, devoids any restaurants or brands or you know industry in, in general and specific to grow a little further than they're supposed to because this, the, the available worker pool is, is not as skilled in that essence. So it takes more time to scale up that way. And also what you said is really important. It's actually really forward thinking. The whole landscape of restaurants is going to change because you said doubling up work, but people's roles are changing. People's roles are shifting. And it used to be very, very regimented where you had a role, you were a manager, you were this. And now that's shifting a lot. It's, I think, you know, in general, people are taking up more, more positions. And it's really hard for me to now. In, during pandemic, I decided that I'm no, more, no longer going to train people for one section. I decided to cross-train them. So, And that really came about from my understanding of working in Indian restaurants and looking at the complex fights between the chefs and the tandoor chefs and the helper. And the chef is always on the edge because the tandoor gives him one day off. So he's scared that tandoor might take over his job. And then the helper is, the tandoor is scared because the helper gives him a day off. So he's afraid that the tandoor, the helper might become the tandoor and he might lose his job. So looking at these complex, I, you know, I, I try finding solutions from my restaurant and from my brand and setting up new ways. So one of the things that I have now focused on is cross-training all my staff into all stations. So they all understand that they all are expendable. At the same time, they all are equally valuable that I'm teaching them all the skills that's required for the kitchen itself. That's smart. Yep. That's yep. really smart. What gives you the greatest joy, you and your family, what gives you the greatest joy of owning a restaurant? I think moments like these are the most joyful. I think when I get to, when I, when I say this, it's now one of the interviews, it's interaction with public that's beyond Nepali community that wants to deeply understand what we're doing, what the food is, what the culture is. And, it, you know, at that point, I become, quote unquote, an ambassador for Nepali cuisine, Nepali culture. And that gives me a great pride and joy because... Uh, at the end of the day, Nepal is a country that is not as, as explorer known by the Western world as much. Now it's opening up more. People are visiting there more. People, the tourism is great, grow, growing bigger. But you know, still, uh, a lot of people don't know where Nepal is. If you, if you give them a map and ask them where Nepal is, people don't know where Nepal is. No, it's, 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 a, it's a true story. You know, when I was growing up in New York, 90% of the people that I met did not know where Nepal is. You know, I must automatically assume I'm Indian. And which bothers me a lot because I'm not. And I have nothing against India, but I have my own identity. Right. I want to be proud of it. Uh, so and it kind of bothers me at times. So moments like these that I can get to spread the knowledge of what I am from, with the culture that I represent and who I am. And when I say that, that also means I'm also a true New Yorker because without New York, I would not be this Nepali. Right? It's, uh, it's, it's, so it's it. embodiment of both sides. But at the same time, this the city of New York, this platform has given me this opportunity to educate people about my culture, my food, my place, where I come from at the same time also the understanding that New York is what made me the, the way I am and I'm able to do this because of New York. So it's a fair balance of both. Education and appreciation. I'm, so it's almost a given where the name, because it's Kathmandu, it's the capital of Nepali, but like while in Kathmandu, where did you come up with that? So this is 2016. Uh, we had something called Saptaha. Saptaha means a seven days of prayer. And uh, most of my families are not in, the, uh, not in Nepal. 
So my father's side, all of his siblings and their families are in Europe and in UKs. Similarly, my mom, uh, her brothers, her sisters, they're all in Europe and in America. So uh, we decided that 2016, it's been a long time. All of the family, you know, has been out of the country for a very long time. My grandmother requested that all of us get back to country one time to do this seven days long prayer session. And this might be the last time that she might be able to see her whole family all together. That was a request at the time, so we kind of fulfilled that. So we all went to Nepal, this 2016, and uh, I was at the prime of my Indian restaurant at that time. I was, you know, when we took over in 2013 from the partners, 14, um, you know, the business went from 40,000 to almost 100,000 a month um, in like nine month, 10 month period. And I was busting mass every single day. It felt really good. It felt really good. It was, you know, it was really productive. It was the first time in my life that I felt 100% productive. I felt like I was part of something bigger than myself. That made me feel really good. So I was not really happy about going to Nepal, to be honest with you, because I had a fight with my father about, you know, if I go right now, this is a very crucial time. I don't have a proper team. You know, things might fall apart. You know, the neighborhood is changing. I see a lot of people coming in, gentrification. There are new restaurants coming in. We're going to have a tough competition when I come back. If things fall apart right now, I don't want to go. We had a big fight. And, you know, he kind of said, like, you know, this, the restaurant is going to run without you. You know, One of the biggest things my father gives me is that uh, he gives me a cold shrug all the time. You know, it's, it's, you know how fathers are. They're not like, you know, they're not like I love you type of guy. They're like more like, good job, type of situation. So my father goes like, you know, the restaurant can run without you too, you know. So in that kind of made me feel a little sad because I was busting my ass off for that period of time. So when I was in Nepal, that two week kind of turned into two months. So I said, you know, since you know that, you know, it, it doesn't need me for, for the restaurant to run. So I might as well take some time off and kind of relax. So I was already there. So I'm also a musician. I make music. I make hip hop music. I produce, uh, I'm a sample bass producer, J. Dilla Madlib situation happening over here. Oh. So uh, in that, so uh, being a sample bass producer, I work with a few artists back home in Nepal. I have connection in Nepali pop. I've been part of it for almost 15 years. So in that time, I took time to meet my artists back home, people that I've collaborated in the past with, hang out with them. And I started working on an album called Wild in Kathmandu in that period. So I'm on this two-month period where I'm meeting up all my artists that I have met, you know, in the internet. We have spoken a lot of times. So I'm in Kathmandu. So while in Kathmandu, I started working on a sample-based hip-hop album called While in Kathmandu. And this is funny because it took me five days. I went through the whole capital looking for cassette tapes because I wanted to go the Madlib way of sampling, you know, cassettes. And I could not find cassettes for five days. I went through the whole city for five days looking for cassettes. So at the end of this five day, you know, like I kind of labeled the album while in Kathmandu, the mixtape. Uh -huh. and, and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm, it's like, I'm just going to work on this. No, no more sampling, you know, no more sample based cassettes. I'll just go with whatever I have. Start working on things over there. I hang out with a few artists, and I hang out with one of the biggest artists at that time called Emma Buddha. Um, really nice brother, rest in peace. You know, he departed. Uh, I hang out with him. He was recording his final album, and um, you know he gives me time. You know he's he's the biggest artist in Nepal right now at that time. You know, um, and he gives me time to hang out with me. I'm nobody. In essence, he's the biggest artist in Nepal right now. I'm a nobody from New York, but still, it is very humble. We have spoken before. He has shared my music. He has shared my tapes as well. So we, we hang out and we, we chill. And he he gives me a very opinion, like very clear opinion. I'm like, because I don't think you should come to Nepal and start making music over here. I'm like, you know, I'm like, are you trying to gatekeep me? I'm, I'm from New York. We just have a straight conversation. I'm like, are you trying to gatekeep over here? What's <laughs> happening? Like, I don't understand their perspective. And he goes like, let me tell you, I did nine, nine events in the last six months. Out of nine events, I've only been paid for three or four. I have to run around promoters to get paid. I have to run around people to get paid. I have to do shit that no artist has to do. Nepal does not have a system yet for you to come around and you feel like you're going to make it over here. It's, it's a very rugged place. 
If anything, you and I should collaborate. You stay over there. We build a base of Nepali hip hop back in New York. Maybe we can do, do tours and whatnot. There are other avenues that we can look into, but it's not it. So, and when I came back after that point, you know, like kind of having the conversation, I hang out with a few other artists, and I realized what he said. You know, no artists were together at that time. Everybody was like, you know, messed up. So, in that, I came back with this title, while in Kathmandu, with the state of mind that I'm gonna finish this album when I'm back in New York. I come back. And my father is very understanding. He knows that I'm upset with the way you know we interacted. So you know he already has this place. He scouted a few locations. I'd already told him by that point that I'm tired of Indian restaurants, the way restaurants work. The huge volume of food, huge volume of preparation, all these ideas I'm not a very fan of. And if anything, I want to go into a cafe and a bar business. So when I came back, he kind of had already looked into a few spaces, you know, and then he, he popped into this space. He sold me this space. Uh, then he was like, you know, this is a space that you want to do something with? And I'm like, yeah, sounds good. But I told him I need to have 100% flexibility of what I do. I cannot go though, go with the understanding of what do you have, the understanding of restaurant world, and I cannot go with those ethics. I want to build my own ways around the food. I want to introduce the world the way I see fit. And, you know, and then he was like, even the name, Wailing Kathmandu, it took me three months to convince him that Let's name the restaurant Wailing Kathmandu. Mm-hmm. From the point we signed the lease, uh, Wailing Kathmandu, in Oct- uh, the lease for this restaurant in October 2016, till June, it was not until like mid Dan, Fev, April almost that you know he kind of agreed upon the name Wailing Kathmandu. He thought, like you know, it doesn't make any sense. Like you know, like it's it's so different. You know, even for him, it's so different. Like, like why Wailing Kathmandu? I'm like you know, for me, it's like. I think the word, the name itself, Wailing Kapandu, it'll be able to transport you. The idea is once you come in, you step in this restaurant, it should be able to bring you to Nepal temporarily. That should be the experience. And that was my mindset when I said Wailing Kapandu. Everybody that walks in, you need to feel like you have walked into Nepal today, even though you're still in New York. That was the intention. And sorry about the long story, but no, I didn't know that needs to be great. spoken. Oh, no. <laughs> tell it, that's tell it perfect. all. That's perfect. So that's the intention behind Wailing Kapandu. Amazing. Love it. So I think we should experience the food of Nepal while in Kathmandu. Of course, of course. And we have more food coming out. Sounds like a plan. So we have tacos in front of not 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 a taco. Not a taco. I want to know what's in my not a taco. So not a taco is very simple. It's um these are things that we would find in a Nepali restaurant or a Nepali kitchen. Like the chia? Yes, I hear. Uh, like just just the PSA delicious. for the world out there in oh. Nepal, we call chai chia. Yeah. Chai and chia is not the same thing. It is the same thing, but we it call it chia. It doesn't have chia seeds in it. No, it does not. No, it does <laughs> no not. I'm just teasing. <laughs> this is so soul warming. You like it? Yes, Too I much. love it. This is that's delicious. The, that's the exact way my mom taught me how to make it. Uh, it's, you know, there's different ways of making teas. One of the, the ways that I, I really focus on tell is, us, tell us. is cooking and simmering down your milk so it becomes more creamy. So if you're prepping for ten, you can feel the thickness in so the if mouth. So you, if you're prepping for ten cups of milk, I mean teas, you would make about thirteen cups worth of water and milk mix in there. Reduce it a and little. And reduce it over time. That's about half hour. I've never had milk and tea before. This is a first for me. This is a That's first right. for me. Milk, Jeff. Oh, nice. But you like it. Uh, this is the, and this it's is very amazing. creamy. You can't have milk. It's a whole milk story. Gotcha. <laughs> but, but you like it. Really this. good. This it's, is really it's good. It's fantastic. It is just so warming. Okay, so we have to learn about these not tacos. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's it's plantain mama. This one plantains mama. Just beautiful food. There is a chicken mama. 
It's the kind of beautiful food that you feel bad messing up the plate and eating it because it's gorgeous. And I always tell people, get messy with it, you know? Use your hands, use your fingers, you know, you can wash your hands, but get in. So this is get-in food. Yes. It is. Uh, I, I think the best way to describe Nepali food would also be the word soul food. Okay. I, 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 I think I, I don't want to take it away from the American soul food oh, side no, of things, you know. No. Uh, and I say that with, with with a lot of love and pride because I think we both have the same ideas. This is the molecule masa, the deep fried white thing, served with shizun and tomato mixed sauce. Enjoy. And the hits keep coming. I'm loving this. So I think uh, food is socioeconomics. You know, it's not only uh, food and cultures. Food uh, really depends on where it comes from, what's available. And all of those really matters. So, you know, for example, um, if an animal is butchered in Nepal, every part of the animal is used. Nothing is waste. There is no such thing as cuts. There is no such thing as prime cuts, you know, side cuts, none of that. Everything is chopped up, everything is cooked up. The intestine is made into one delicacy, the head, and the brain is made into one delicacy, the ears and tongues is made into one delicacy, and then the rest of the meat is portioned out into gravies, curries, fried, dried, depends on what it is. But, you know, it's like... And I think that comes from not having the luxury of meat as much, so everything is used uh, upon. So what's in the nut taco? So let's bite into nut taco. I think you already bit into it. I think um, it's, it's, it's very simple. It's not too complicated. Oh and, uh, it's roti. Roti is a flatbread. Uh, in Hindi, they call it chapati. In Nepali, we call it roti. Uh, and sukha roti, to be specific, because it's dry bread. Uh, and on that, we have a base of tomato chutney in the bottom. That's a tomato pickle. And on top of that is choila chicken. Choila is a Nivari dish that's really popular by ethnic group in Kathmandu and Nivari cuisine is really popular. We take that choila, we almost chop it down like pulled pork, then it's added a little spice to it, a little garnish and a mayo, uh, mayonnaise, spicy mayonnaise aioli on top, this the garnish. Absolutely phenomenal. And that texture, how you said about chopping it, that's like machaca in Mexico and where it's the dried meat. Oh my goodness. Absolutely delicious. And just the way the spices and the sauces go together to flavor everything, it's, it's heavenly. The mayonnaise came later on because I realized that the, the choila spice that we marinated that, it, it's a little bit of spice and overpowering. So it, uh, six months into operation, we kind of decided that we want to add something that can kind of numb it down a little bit. So we add a little bit more creamy section of mayonnaise in there on top. It's delicious. It has, a, it has a little bite to it. But it's waking up. It's waking up all of my senses too. Like if you feel a little dulled, this is what you should eat to not be dull. It's really quite delicious. It really is. That is so good. That was the first thing. Let's go into the second thing. If you guys are ready. And as we are enjoying it, we'll. I'll try explaining everything that we have. Uh, these are of course the small portions over here. This one right here with the sauce and the the long. Dumplings are called chicken momos. Uh, our momos are safe-coated, so nothing is mixed up into one into each other. So every single momos are definitely safe. So everybody, even the, in the even, even the weakest chain of the link of the chain can understand that what momos are what. And is, nothing is mixed up. Is one shape more traditional than another? So uh, the pork momos are more pulled. Uh, those are knotted on the top. Those, I think, are the most popular way of making momos, especially uh, if you go into shops in Kathmandu, any place in the country, those are the most popular way not on the top uh, and I didn't bring out the pork today I brought and out the chicken and the plantain and what is jol jol means sauce okay. the word jol literally means sauce right and the, the word is sauce dumpling jol and, and 
and there's difference because I think in, in English or American cuisine way of things or the mainstream cuisine way of things over here, the word curry is, is uh, in, grouped into everything. The word sauce is grouped into everything. But, you know, they, we have a specific words for specific things. So achar can also mean this right here. That's like a chutney. That's a side that you can dip into. But this is also achar. This is also achar that's more thin. So they are both part of the same family. This jol right here is made out of sesame, tomato, and soybean base uh, with a lot of ginger garlic, uh, cumin, coriander, garam masala, chilies, green chilies, red chilies, Sichuan pepper chilies, uh, and a lot of love and few other things that I can't disclose because you know I have a lot of competition. But all of the healing things. This, this is so good. So this is this one is this one is chicken. This one is plantain. The heart shape are plantain, and plantain is a very New York inspired dish. Uh, you know, this is me growing up with a lot of Dominican friends. Uh, eating platanos and, and getting that introduction of plantains in my life that I kind of decided that we can go with that route for a very meaty texture, but it's veggie. Very meaty. It's vegan. Very meaty. Incredible that everyone can enjoy that. That's beyond delicious. And, and the lightness of the wrap, too, of the actual dumpling wrap. The one Jeff is trying right now, the chicken momos, chicken dumplings. Uh, fun fact, the most popular meat for dumplings in Nepal are buffalo, water buffalo. South Asian water buffalo. Really? Yeah, we don't eat beef. Uh, I mean, we do have uh, segments of people that do eat beef. But nothing against them, but the majority of the country is, is Hindu, so beef is not as commonly used. Uh, and so, water buffalo is commonly used for meat. So, you know, I enjoy it. I have enjoyed a lot of water buffalo moments throughout my youngins, when I was almost from age of six till ten, eleven. That chicken dumpling really is really, really good. <laughs> And the other dumpling is a plantain? Plantain momos, yes. That is specifically built uh, for the vegan and vegetarian base that we target in the very beginning of the restaurant. Um. And do you offer a number of vegan menu items? Yes. So in the very beginning when we opened up, I think my intention was very clear. I, I saw the market for what it was. There was a big uh, push for vegetarian and vegan meals. And for me, uh, I, when I looked into my kitchen, we don't have to try very hard because a lot of things is already vegan by default. So I was able to incorporate those ideas into becoming plates and ideas that I was able to offer. And what I think, what I see in the market for vegan food is there are chefs that offer a, a forceful menu items. Uh, you know, it's not, it didn't come in naturally. It's, it's a chef sitting in a, a place, uh, you know, and just putting ideas together that it might become a dish. Versus these ideas are sometimes just naturally from my kitchen that are already, you know, let's say for example, uh, the word papar, bara, um, papar and kodo, millet and buckwheat are primarily used a lot in the hill part of Nepal. You don't have a lot of rice cultivation, you have a lot of stories for flour, so those are used a lot and they are by default, uh, you know, not used, they're not made using butter or ghee. They, those could be added on top later on, but even for that, those families that are you know, surviving up in the hilly areas, uh, butter and milk and, and ghee are a big part of their diet. But they're not consumed together like, you know, they, they, they might spread it on top of the bread. But for me, it was easy because, like, I see a bread that's already gluten-free. Buckwheat and, and, and kodo. These are gluten-free ideas. And yeah. the market is always demanding a lot of gluten-free ideas. Right. So it was easy for me to kind of see this through. And, like, okay, let me incorporate this. Uh, we, when we opened up, we opened up as a breakfast. And we focused on doing more vegetarian things than we did on meat. Well, the attention incredible. to detail on all of the little pieces, too, is so incredible. Tell us what we have here, Chef. So what we have over here is called sekua. Those are skewers. 
uh, it might be a little overburned, but it's okay. Then the charred feeling is really good for your health as well. Okay. And the taste, taste but kind of recognizes the charring as a good thing. So we have one stick of chicken and one stick of goat. Uh, yes. And on the bottom is something called furandana. Furandana is basically flat beaten rice that has been fried and it's mixed up with fried ginger, fried garlic, garden peas, onions, fried onions, spices and masalas that's mixed up to it. Mix, mix a nice little bed of crunchy yeah. segments of things for, for the protein to go with. So you take a piece of the meat, you take a little bit of a little, little crunch and a little bit of sauce, it'll give you a perfect amount of textures happening where you have a nice little meat happening, the taste of the, the spice kind of kicks in and the texture of the, the, the crunch, the puff kind of gives you <laughs> in. wonderful, get some puff. Mm. I'm gonna get some puff. Mm-hmm. And the sauce on that is tomato Sichuan pepper. And wow. these, these are cooked open flame, so it has a nice little charcoal, uh, nice little gold charcoaly flavor to it. It's cooked perfectly. It is? Perfect. That chicken is absolutely perfect. Beautiful. No the, dryness the there. The goat is really, really good. Mm, goat's my favorite. And the goat is really tricky. Like the Australian goats that we get in the, in the depots in the market, you know, I'm not a big fan of them as much. Uh, they tend to be a lot more harder in texture. Versus if I go for like a baby goat uh, that I can get from vendors uh, that, that deliver from New Jersey or even like Bengali vendors in, in Jackson Heights, if they can deliver, those baby goats meat are very soft. Like literally five minutes on fire, they'll melt. Really? Yeah. But they cost almost double, triple. Like sure. you're talking about $5 per pound, $6 per pound for regular goat meat versus $13, $14 for baby goat meat. Yeah. Growing up when we'd get the grown goats, we would have to cook them in the ground overnight, overnight. 24 hours I agree, 100%. for them to fall really? apart. For them to fall apart, it takes a long time and patience. So, like, barbecuing goat is, 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 you have to understand them very well. Oh, this is done so well. This is so great. I mean, this is the kind of a destination place to come and talk about the food, not to just talk about other things. Beautiful. So, hopefully, everybody's coming to do that, and if not, they're going to come now. They definitely hmm. will. Delicious. All right, what's this one? So, this is Dutch Hoyla. Choila uh, is a typical Newari dish. Uh, Newar is an ethnic group population of Kathmandu Valley uh, and beyond in Nepal. They're spread out. And they, uh, I think, have made one of the biggest uh, contributions to Nepali cuisine as a whole. I, I want to give them a lot of big props because a lot of restaurants in the West, that w- the food that we feature, that definitely comes a lot from the Newari cuisine because they're sophisticated ways of doing things and the way they have progressed for years in, in their cuisine. So, for example, let me give you an example. Uh, they do something similar to what you would do as a beef tartar, like they would do with water buffalo. You know, kachela is raw meat and heated up and it's ser- served with a side of a sauce. Mm-hmm. They would uh, do little things like these that we we see as you know in the West that, that's like focused upon or like seen seen upon as a delicacy. Right. These are already present it's over there. Common. It's yeah. already present over there. You know, it, it took me some years in the industry to realize how sophisticated this cuisine was in the world. So I have a very big appreciation for Nawai cuisine. Duck choila over here is a very popular dish. The way it's done is that they smoke the meat first. Then uh, I typically fry a little bit for a l- little bit of hard texture. And if the meat is chilled overnight, then it's marinated with raw spices. Uh, when you taste into it, they do have bone. So you know, if you want to use your hands, that's perfectly fine as well. Uh, when you do go into it, you'll find a very pungent taste of mustard. Very the, pungent. Uh, D- Dijon mustard and, and, and garlic. Those are going to be your uh, very primary context flavor behind those ideas on the choila. Uh, it's very pungent, it's very harsh, uh, it, it's a acquired taste. It's one of the things that people sometimes don't like it as much because it might throw you off, but I, I always advocate for trying new things. 
Um, and this is one of those things that I, that's why I wanted to bring it out. This is what? Chekwa, uh, uh, Choila. This is Duck Choila. 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 Yes. The most popular medium of Choilas in Nepal are going to be buff Choilas uh, from the Nepali cuisine. And then we also go into chicken Choila or goat cho Choilas in the, in the market, depending on where you are. Uh, over here, we do two, two different kind of Choilas. Uh, we do chicken Choila and duck Choilas. Chicken Choilas are more popular because I also, also use them for Choila rotis and uh, people try them a lot more. They're also boneless. Uh, duck people get thrown off a little bit because it has, it's very bony. It has bone. And I always tell people like, hey, a duck is a duck. It only has so much meat. What can I do about it? <laughs> like, I, I wish I can ask the duck master to make duck more fatty. I don't know what can I do about it. Duck is a duck. You know, it has bones. Correct. <laughs> it's perfect. It was amazing. Mm. Really good. I love it. And the final dish. And the final dish. This is mole kukumacha. And this is uh, one of those things that I specifically added on the menu for my own memories and also memories of Nepalese people. So... Uh, Big population of Nepalese people, they lived, uh, they are from outside of Kathmandu. Uh, so, you know, they have either grown up in Kathmandu or they're, they're, they're there. And when they get out of Kathmandu Valley to go to their places, there's a place called Maleku. It's a, it's a travel destination that you have to pass through, almost like, let's say, if you're going from uh, New York to Pennsylvania, you can go to New Jersey regardless. Similarly, you know, you go from point A to point B, there is a midpoint. But that midpoint, it's really popular for fried fish. Okay. And uh, it's called uh, Maleku. Maleku is a place in, in Nepal. It's, it's really popular for fried fish. It was really popular for fried fish. Uh, I've heard these days that they don't have fish in the river anymore, so they are exporting fish from Janakpur, the border side, or even India. Um, but at that time, when we were children or young, uh, when I have my memories, a lot of people have their memories, that part of the place, of the country, was really, really popular for fried fish, dry fish. They would have like 20, 30 shops just having tons of dried fish outside. And the pungent smell of fish all over the place. And that's one of the few places that I remember having any idea of seafood or like water food. Mm. That's my memory. So uh, this one is more has to do with memories and bringing the same idea. Physically looks the very same. And with the head on and the bone on, it throws people off sometimes. So what would we know this fish as? This is whiting. It is whiting. It is whiting. Mm. So, and, and the best way to go about this is break it into half, dip it into a sauce, and bite into it. Don't let the bones worry you. Don't let anything worry you. That's what I will tell you. Mm. Break it in half? Because mm -hmm. the, the way it's fried and the way it's cured, uh, I don't think you'll have a problem with a lot of things in there. Especially if you grab a sauce in there, it, you, know, you can skip the head. I, a lot of people get, uh, in the very beginning, a lot of people were very um, thrown off by the head. They were like, oh, the head, you know, it's like, it kind of throws me off. And I'm like, you know. If I take the head off, the whole memory part goes away. I lose the whole essence of it being the whole fish. Wow. Fantastic. That's really Just good. Just fantastic. Is that the same sauce that we had here yes. as well? Yes. Okay. That, that is uh, tomato Sichuan pepper. I mean, I hate to say it, but for me, the head was the best part. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it's just crunchy. It's very crunchy. It's very crunchy. Like Nepali people, I mean, some Nepali people would hate it. Uh, I know a lot. I like it myself, I would go into that crunch. I love it. You have to eat the head. I'm, I'm a duck beak girl, too, and like chicken feet, so all of it. Yes. Are there bones in the head? No, just crunch it. Just don't think about it. Really? <laughs> yeah, just don't think about it. <laughs> There's nothing in the head. There's nothing in the head. It's already empty. <laughs> it's delicious, right? It is really good yeah. and crunchy. Yeah. It's wonderful. And the presentation was amazing and all of it. It's, it's just beautiful and you can feel the heart and soul. I mean, I would call this soul food in a heartbeat. I appreciate that so much. Wow. And look at you eating fish heads. 
I've never had fish head before. No, I'm very have. glad that you know this is the first place you have a fish. This is the first time I've had a fish head <laughs> and Good goat. For you. Goat. That's your first time with goat. This is first time with goat. You never had goat in your whole life. This is the first time for. Wow. I'm from Missouri, like nothing against Missouri. Love my home state, yes. but just very limited with no, regards to. Gotcha. This is amazing. The plating is amazing. The sole in it is amazing. I highly recommend Wild and Kathmandu to all of our listeners anywhere in New York. Please come. Wow. So, Bikash, what else would you like to tell the listeners? Any final thoughts or notes or anything that you'd like them to hear? I would say um, be, uh, it's, this is not specific to myself and the restaurant itself. I think this will be a message for the greater the restaurant industry itself. Be understanding of the changing times that we're in. Inflation is really high. Uh, don't get too upset about little things like sauce, extra charges. That's something that I'm dealing with on an everyday basis almost. Uh, and people get upset about it. They get pissed off. And they take their frustration out on workers and servers, which is not very healthy. You know, it kind of boils down to the owners eventually. But learn to look at it from perspective of the bigger picture. Uh, you know, we are buying uh, eggs for about... $15, $20 for 15 dozen not too long ago. We were paying about $65, $70 right now. It's incredible. Ginger garlic went from $20, $25 to like $45, $60. You know, tomatoes, potatoes, every single thing in the market has exploded in the prices. And a lot of restaurants have tried keeping their prices down. I have only raised about 4 to 5% in the last four years. Even during the pandemic, the max I've gone is 10%. And I cannot keep on changing prices. I, I will eventually have to because I wanted to ride out the pandemic. I wanted to wait through the, all the things. We were part of, uh, you know, we were part of a restaurant that is pretty decently cheap. It's not too expensive over here, mm-hmm. especially my momos and little things that we have. They are under good pricing, ten, twelve dollars for a meal. You know, one order I, I served you guys a small plate with three pieces only. My one order of momos are eight pieces. That's about twelve dollars, and that one order of momos will fill you up yeah. really good. Yeah? That's big. Yeah. So, so what I want people to understand: don't get mad at little things in the industry, like you know. If they're charging extra for the sauce, there might be a reason for it. There's, we're not stupid. We're not doing things out of no right. reason to just charge you guys more. Right. And we also have our own problems. I, I, I wanted to understand that. And it's not only for me. It's for the restaurant industry in general. There are going to be prices changes. There are going to be things that are changing. I think having accessible restaurant is going to be a lot more harder in the future because of the way the industry is changing so rapidly. And it's not very healthy. And it, for me, like you know, there are days like right now, I don't feel really good. I'm getting married in June. By the way, congratulations! Thank you, I appreciate it, guys. <laughs> and uh, I was really happy about three to four weeks ago because I had a stable team. I had a sous chef that was taking care of everything for me. I was not here every day. I was just buying supplies. I was overseeing them on the weekends. I was just managing the restaurant as an overseer because I had just been busting my ass for the last two three years. And I was really happy. I was looking forward to the wedding. And then now he walked away from me. Things are falling apart for me. Um, you know, I, I, I have to train new staff. I have to think about days off for everybody. I haven't taken a day off myself because first, my priority is as a leader to have everybody else get their days off and their rest. You know, they can complain to me, but I have nobody else to complain to, so I can only just keep on rugged and doing it. So in those scenarios, I want also customers to understand they might go to a restaurant. Like for me, like I have my days where from Monday to Thursday, I'm, I'm a little slower on dinner services. But my, my Thursday evening, Friday evening, Saturday evening, Sunday evening, I'm slammed on those days. And when everybody is coming at the same time and you guys are slamming any restaurant, I'm not only talking about myself, you guys are slamming restaurants on weekends and Thursdays and you expect things to go right, you want your food on the right time, it's not going to happen. We're all humans. And that's the reality of things. You know? that, that has to be understood by the consumer itself. It has to be. 
either you offset your habits, you know, go on the weekdays, or you expect a little delays once you go walk into a busy restaurant. You cannot have both, you know, in Nepali there it says, uh, you, you can't have uh, laddus in both of your hands. Laddus are sweet. You, know, you can't have eggs on all of your baskets, same idea, right? So, you know, it's, think about it. Think about it really hard and nice. I love that. Well, it's really important, and it's like the consumer in restaurants, it's there's like there's almost a fourth wall, and they don't see the back. They don't see what's going on, and it's just very, very self-centered. So it's really incredible to get that message out for all of us, for all restaurants to not yes. have a little more patience, especially right now. Certainly, yeah. certainly. It's good advice. Because this has been amazing. Amazing. I want to thank you guys for the opportunity and be able to you know, kind of take off a little bit of load off of me. It felt good. It felt good, even though I've been been going at it for the last couple of days. Now I saw my friend earlier. I told him I don't feel so good about this interview today. But at the end of the conversation, I, it does feel good. It does yes, feel good. We it had feels a very great to tell your story. It, it, it's a, we had a very meaningful conversation. You know, it was not like very scripted. It was just we just having conversation. It was comfortable to be here. So tell everyone where you're located so they can come and experience <laughs> while in Kathmandu. I want to invite everybody to 758 Seneca Avenue, Ridgewood, New York, Queens. And this is your boy Funky, Funky NYC, serving good Nepali food every single day. And if I'm not here, you can see my guy, uh, Mr. Siva. He's my guy. He's my brother. He's the manager. And he'll take care of you very well. And we're excited to take care of you every single day. I love <laughs> Me too. That. I'm in love. <laughs> Louder. Be adventurous and support your local restaurants. Peace and love to everyone. Visit us on Instagram and visit all of Queen's Chamber of Commerce social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. You can find us everywhere. And until you hear our voices again, we are out sticking a fork in it. And we're done.